I invite you to turn to the back of the Book of Praise to page 536 as we read now from Lord's Day 22. So it uh, actually explains those last two articles of our Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed. Question 57 deals with the resurrection and question 58 with everlasting life. So question 57 asks, what comfort does the resurrection of the body offer you? And it answers, not only shall my soul after this life immediately be taken up to Christ my head, but also this my flesh, raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Question 58, what comfort do you receive from the article about life everlasting? It answers, since I now already feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, I shall after this life possess perfect blessedness such as no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, a blessedness in which to praise God forever. And so ends the reading of our Confession of Faith, the Huddleberg Catechism, Lord's Day 22. And we're going to be looking at the passage that we read from earlier in light of, of that uh, theme, the resurrection of, of, of Jesus, the resurrection through Jesus. And we're going to be looking at verses 17 to 44 in close relation to Lord's Day 22. And after the message, we'll sing from him. Uh, 67, 1, 2, 3, 4, and 7. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this chapter begins with the unexpected and ends with the amazing. It begins with the unexpected, and it ends with the amazing. The totally unexpected part is found here in Jesus' delay of love. We didn't read that section, the earlier portion of it, but he was very close friends with these three siblings in in Bethany. It was a very, very beautiful description of Jesus' relationship with these three. They didn't claim to be Jesus' friends They were his friends. We see his great care and love that Jesus had for, as John says it very clearly in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and his sister, and her sister rather, and Lazarus, and he loved them. They loved him, and he loved them. But Jesus had a, a very, Jesus had rather heard the very difficult news that one he loved was sick. And that's where the unexpected took place. Verse 6 states, So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And if you look very carefully at at the text here, verses 5 and 6, together we find that word so, following verse 5. That word so in verse 6 means that the two-day delay was motivated by Jesus' love for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He deliberately delayed out of love for them. How could that be? How could Jesus stay behind 
Why did he not send word? Does he really care? Doesn't, does he really listen to the voices of the, one, of the ones that he loves? The Lord's glory is seen through this delay. This, this is the unexpected part about all of this. There are delays. There are unexpected things that happen in life, and we don't understand why that is. But the unexpected things that he does in the life of the children of God are out of his love and care. They're for, his, they're, they're for their good. We all need to adjust our thinking about this. Sometimes we fail to do this. But Jesus delayed because he was working all things for his glory. And that's something that comes within the Gospel of John already. Uh, we, we see that in the, in the chapter, uh, chapter 9 actually, that deals with the, the blind man. You remember the disciples asking the question, who has sinned? This man or his parents? And Jesus said, no, no, you got it all wrong. This has happened that the work of God may be revealed. His power is made known in weakness. So whenever he delays, he wants to persuade his own children as well as others that he does all things for his glory and might. And we need to be able to say, Lord, if if you are delaying, then help us to know that you are going to display your glory in the same way, in the way that we may have never expected. What is a particular interest in this text is Jesus' conversation uh, with, his, with, with uh, both Martha and Mary, specifically highlighted by the Apostle John. As Jesus comes to the scene, Martha meets him. She expresses her faith in him. But the Lord is seeking to build up her faith even more and to make her see where her hope really is. There's more hope than just a creed. There's hope in more than just an abstract truth. There's hope in him. And Mary came to him in great pain and sorrow. Jesus groaned at death itself, and he tenderly stands by her side. And so for this afternoon, as we look at this passage, we see that Jesus gives us comfort regarding the future. And there are three points for this afternoon's sermon. First of all, revealing himself as the true hope in the face of death. Secondly, recognizing the reality of death. And then thirdly, raising Lazarus and overcoming death. So first of all, revealing himself as true hope in the face of death. Bethany was a village just outside of Jerusalem, and this was a very risky place for uh, Jesus to be coming. Anytime Jesus was near Jerusalem, there was opposition. Jesus did his works. He spoke of his father, but the Jews in their darkness tried to snuff out the light. But Jesus continues to work. It's still daylight. There's 12 hours in the day, he said, and it was still the 11th hour. The father was protecting his son until that time when he would be crucified. So there's tremendous risk for him coming here, of course. But as Jesus said to his disciples, God is in control of the calendar. 
And when Jesus came there, Lazarus had already been, been dead for four days. And when you know the, the climate of, of, of Palestine and other uh, milder temperatures, even a day can make a difference. Many in the village came to be with the remaining sisters, and they came to bring comfort. And apparently in those days, it was actually uh, quite common to hire uh, professional mourners. We're not told about that here, but that was often the custom. Jesus had come to bring out a further revelation about himself. And we see that in his contact with Martha. Notice that she went out to meet him. She's presented in the Bible as more aggressive of the two sisters. There's a certain kind of character that uh, just comes out uh, right out in the open. She's the kind of person who wears her heart on her sleeve, as it were. We got a cameo, a cameo of her in Luke when she complained to the Lord that Mary wasn't helping her out. We know people like that too, who wear their heart in their sleeve. Lord, if you, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. She probably had been thinking about that over and over. If only you were here. If only you were here. So when she saw him, the thoughts just come out of the mouth. And you might call it a half-truth. There's a, there is a mixture of grief here. If, it had, if he had been there, she knew that Christ had the power to heal her brother, whatever sickness he had. Yet her confidence in the Lord was not strong enough. She limited his power. Once her brother died, she thought, even Jesus couldn't change that. But there's a ray of hope in Martha. Although she had some doubts and unbelief, she wasn't about to let go of her faith, as verse 22 says. She knew that the Father would give the Son whatever he asked to do his work of ministry. Jesus had said, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Our omniscient and almighty God. But he only used, but he used it only in the manner prescribed by God's will. And Martha knew of his power, which would come from on high. She didn't know yet what was going to come at this point. And there's almost a mix of, of uh, trust here and accusation of Jesus, but she does trust him. And then Jesus replies, in verse 23, he mentions the resurrection. Your brother will rise again. And Martha had a belief about this. She had a creed, just like we do. She responds, as she, as she says there in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's, a, that's the creed. Sadducees didn't believe that. But she does. And yet the real question, the crucial question is, what kind of faith does she have? Does she just believe it in a, as a fact? As a cold abstract truth? Or does she believe the truth in a personal, warm and assuring way? what we need to see here, congregation, is the way that the Lord ministered to her to take her out of a mere belief in the truth to a real understanding of it. 
He did that by speaking to her. The son said, I am the one that you need to believe in. I'm the creed. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. You see, our hope in the face of death is not just in an abstract statement. It is in Jesus. Jesus is saying, look at me. God's resurrecting power is not only to be thought of as in, in a distant future. It's not just an abstract truth. It's not just a, a creed. It's right there in front of you, Martha. It's me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Even though he may die, he shall live. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson says, he asks the question, what is the difference? And he answers it by saying, it's the difference between knowing the truth and knowing the power of the truth. It's the difference between knowing that these things are true and knowing the power of the truth that's in them, in your own life. Consider the blessing of this revelation. Christ revealed himself in this way because this is precisely the message that we need to hear. We have assurance that God's own son, who has become like us, who has taken on our earthly existence by taking on our flesh, has been victorious over death. And when we're in him, we will live forever. That's the gospel truth. And it's in that sense that Christians never die. Death has been transformed for them as a passageway into that world of everlasting life. Our souls immediately go to be with the Lord because of the eternal life that our Lord has given them. Even their bodies only go to sleep and they'll wake up again and be given that glorious body, same one that Jesus has been given. But you know, congregation, it's not just an abstract truth. He is the very creed. And that's why you must listen to the word of God this afternoon. Because just as Martha was listening to Jesus, so Jesus is asking us, do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? What's it going to be? What's going to make your funeral distinct from someone else in the world, say? Who doesn't believe. So this isn't just an abstract truth. Christ is the creed. Anyone who believes in him will never die. Trust me, Jesus says. I am the source of life. Well, secondly, we see here that the Lord recognizes the reality of death in verses 28 to 37. This, is, this, this we, we see in how Mary goes out to meet him, Jesus sent for Mary to come to him. This is not said in so many words. We, we gather this from the discreet message that uh, Martha sent to her. 
knowing that the mourners would follow her to the tomb, he wanted to speak to her privately. He hadn't moved. He still was where he was when he talked to Mary, or to Martha, rather. And for us who know the outcome, we know that he had everything planned. But he first had to reach out into Mary's heart before performing the great miracle. And notice, if you would, the, that, that Mary made that same initial comment as Martha had. If only you had been here, Lord, this would never have happened. We see a, a bit of pessimism here again. She would have made a good wife for Thomas. Now, the word for weeping in verse 31, I think it's translated a little bit differently in, in the ESV. No, it does use the word weep as well. That word weeping means wailing. And this is where we, where we see the, the emotions of the Lord Jesus Christ. His emotions are all over this passage. He's a sympathetic Savior who's able to identify with our weaknesses. And notice very carefully the way that Jesus reacted to all the pain that he saw these people going through. When the Lord saw the grief that the others were experienced, he groaned in his spirit, verse 33 says. Sometimes groan means being angry. And so we get a sense that he's angry about what's the, the consequences for, for sin, what sin can do, how much misery sin puts in our lives. He's troubled in his spirit over this. He is sad, emotionally gripped by it. He's recognizing the reality of death. Then we see what simply happens. Where have you laid him, he asks. Lord, come see. Jesus wept. Short and simple. It wasn't loud wailing. John chose the word, therefore, shed tears, which means he too burst into tears. And from this, we see the the glorious humanity of our Lord as he grieved with Mary for the loss of this human life. Jesus' grief was more than just at the effects of sin, which brings death. He simply was sharing in the grief. And the Jews saw this. They had a very limited interpretation of Jesus' tears as if they'd only been shed in grief over the death and not in genuine sympathy with those who mourned. Others were, were cynical, saying, you know, why, why couldn't he have just healed this man? This is the man who heals people, brings sight to the blind. And you might ask, why did Jesus bother to cry? Why didn't he just say, Come on, everyone, cheer up. I'm here to, you know, to bring a, a bad situation into something good. I've got it all figured out. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He didn't say those things because he's a sympathetic savior. He saw firsthand what sin does to us. And some of us perhaps haven't experienced death firsthand. Not yet. Some of us have. We've seen our loved ones go. That's an experience you don't want to wish on anyone. 
whatever our experience has been up to this point, one thing we can be certain of, Jesus Christ has a full and honest recognition of the reality of death and dying. How much more human can you get than Jesus standing there weeping? Mary at his side, groaning in his spirit, having the hardest time containing himself because of the grief that he's going through. He understands. The connection is there because he wants you to know all the emotions that you go through. He's gone through them. He knows. And as you consider this, there have been innumerable multitude of saints who've gone through the same. That's what every Christian must go through until the Lord Jesus Christ comes. That's the comfort that we have. This world has fallen apart. But the Lord is going to change that. As we look at this, we see that this is the ordinary, universal experience of death and dying. There's no sugarcoating here. This is just the plain truth. But what's so amazing is that the Lord knows and understands. He wanted to feel our pain. He knows the sorrow and the emptiness you felt when you watched a casket of a loved one being lowered down to the ground. And he's there to comfort us as we say goodbye to loved ones and as we ourselves face that last enemy. Coming to fulfill the words of Hosea 13, verse 14, where it says, O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. So that we can say today, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? And he is the one who lives that though we may carry family and friends to the grave, can say that he has abolished death and brought immortality to light by the gospel so that we can rest confidently in him. That brings us to our last point, raising of Lazarus and overcoming death. Children, this is the part you've been looking forward to. It's a miracle that stands out from all the others. We see it in his empathy as he groaned within himself and came to the tomb, Lazarus being dead for, ten, uh, for four days already. There are smells of death. Lazarus, humanly speaking, is without hope. He's dead. But Jesus comes near the tomb. In verses 41 and 42, the prayer clearly is for all there to see it and to hear it. We've already been told that the raising of Lazarus was the sovereign intention. Jesus came to Bethany exactly for this reason. He was determined to demonstrate that he was in the world at the command of his father and had come to do his father's will. The miracle was not only a confirmation of Christ and his word, it was meant to call men, to call people to believe in him. The stones rolled away, and Jesus commands Lazarus to come forth. An old writer put it this way. 
that Jesus had to say, Lazarus, come forth. Because if he had just said, come forth, all the other all the other graves that were there would have been opened up. All the dead would have come out. It gives you goosebumps when you think about it. Just thinking about the power that Christ had and how the power he had was so much that he could bring a lifeless corpse back to life by simply commanding. Jesus granted Life to Lazarus' lifeless body. There's no, cooper- there's no cooperation here. By Lazarus, the Lord granted life, and Lazarus lived by the grace of God. And then we have the description of the grave clothes as well. Notice that this would fit burial customs. Lazarus could shuffle, but wouldn't be able to do that very well. Wouldn't be able to step very well. Very well. Hence the Lord's command to re- release him, and thus. Lazarus comes from the dead. And so the question is, why did Jesus call Lazarus out of the the grave? Why not call everyone from the graveyard of that tomb, of their tomb of that day? Well, it's because it's a sign. It's a sign pointing to the resurrection and the life. Christ is able to raise men from the dead for he himself would one day rise from the dead. And it speaks to us not only of Christ's resurrection, it also shows us how we too will be raised by the power of that same command. Only we will be raised in fullness. Lazarus rose from the dead, but he died again. His resurrection wasn't permanent. It wasn't It won't be, rather, until the very end, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our bodies will be heavenly bodies, incorruptible, glorious, spiritual. As that first man was the man of dust, referring to Adam. This is the Apostle Paul writing. So also those who are made of dust, and as is the heavenly man, so also those who are heavenly. This is because the Lord's resurrection was very different from this one. He came from the dead with a spiritual body and left the grave clothes behind. Lazarus' resurrection was just just an anticipation of the greater resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and of all who believe in his name at the last day. And as we said, it's a sign. John's language here, it's a sign pointing forward to that day. You see, death is not the end. It's an end of a, of a period of existence, a chapter of our lives, but not the end of life. Not if your life is in Christ. And you want proof of that? Well, here's a, here's a dead man living again. It's only a demonstration of the Lord's power. He didn't come back to life as a perfect man. He would have died again, but his resurrection proves that the Lord has power over the grave. And that we have a Redeemer who knows what he's talking about when he says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be 
also. And so what will it be for you when that time comes? What will it be for you? Don't let the creed just be an abstract truth. Put your faith in the Lord now. Don't wait until you're too weak or too sick or in much pain, too distracted to seriously consider these things. Because death can come just like that. We're urged to think about that now. And those who are wise, think about it now. What a blessing it is that Jesus is the source of life. And when we, and when we believe in him, though we die, we shall live. For whoever believes in Christ will never die. Do you believe this? Amen.